traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, you're listening to a special edition of The Economist Asks, the second in a two-part series in which we explore the role of human creativity in society and how we all might get a bit better at it. I'm Anne McElvoy. And I'm Lane Green. And we'll be picking apart one of the most discussed but elusive elements of human behaviour. You're listening to Creativity Explained from Economist Radio. Now... What I'm hearing here, Anne, is that if you want to become the next dot-com billionaire, all you need to do is just knuckle down and keep practicing your piano. I have to say I'm a little bit skeptical. It sounds like a really good excuse for cutting class and going off to the piano room. I think it's a very attractive alternative to the day job. And according to people we've been speaking to, this anyone-can-do-it spirit does seem to be the prevailing wisdom. Put a piano in the room, leave someone to it, and we know the rest. Customers for the 1404 train to Brussels. This is the final call for checking. My name is uh, Vincenzo. I'm from Italy. I started playing the piano when I was nine years old. Playing private, I, I can do mistakes. It doesn't matter because I, I, I do exercise. So when I, I'm in public, I'm more stressed. I, I can play not very well, but the improvisation uh, helps, helps me very, very much, I think. Improvisation in piano and improvisation in life. St Pancras is one of London's busiest train stations, and it is home to two street pianos. The concept of leaving pianos in public places came from the British artist Luke Jerram. He started out in 2008, and there are now more than 1,500 pianos and counting in 51 cities around the globe from Hangzhou in China to San Jose in the United States. Great places to train your creative brain. Uh, Manel Bujela. I've been playing by myself uh, for two years. Always when I find a piano like this in the public places, uh, I play. Music is very important. If I don't play, I, I feel bad a little. I, I need it. And in particular, when you learn by yourself, you, you think it's hard. And the, for example, this song, I never thought that I could play it. And so when I now I could, I always say that I could do other things in my life, and even if it's complicated. Sarah Jane Dominic, I'm from Derby. I had lessons when I was a kid for about 10 years and then I bought a piano again about a year ago. So I just started playing again. I've always walked past this piano and thought I'll play on that one day. Definitely makes me feel more creative. I think just the ability to produce something that sounds good. I'm not very good at art, so probably that and photography are the ways I choose to be creative. Thanks. (laughs) 
Intriguing, I thought, that sense that people, as we heard there, need a bit of creativity in their lives, Lane. It's a kind of tug. Some people feel that tug, but other people seem to be encouraging all of us to try to be creative. There's this idea in the educational establishment that every student must be well-rounded and have a bit of art, a bit of music, and so on. And I'm not sure everyone needs to be that kind of creative. Today, surely, the concept of creativity has moved on. It's not just about painting and poetry and music, but also about things like computer coding or crisis management. So can we all be creative? I'm not entirely convinced. I need more of a nudge in the right direction. Let's bring on Keith Sawyer. Keith is one of the world's leading scientific experts on creativity. He's, wait for it, Morgan Distinguished Professor in Educational Innovations at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He's a man firmly in the universal creativity camp. All the research shows that anyone can learn to be creative. Any one of us can learn to be more creative. Creativity is based in everyday brain processes that we know and use. There's no research that exceptional creators have something different about their brains or that they have a personality trait that they're born with. Exceptional creators have learned to engage in habits of mind and behaviors and actions that they know from experience are more successful at generating good ideas. Any one of us can learn those habits of mind and increase our own creativity. Now, this is a very popular view among psychologists and experts like Keith. It feeds that idea that practice makes perfect. Sometimes you hear it called the 10,000-hour rule, and that's a theory that was originally put forward in a 1993 paper by the Swedish psychologist Ernst Ericsson. It's got a snappy title, the role of deliberate practice in the acquisition of expert performance. Erickson and his colleagues looked at four areas, medicine, music, sport, and chess, actually. And he studied individuals who had experienced repetitive and high concentration practice, the sort of stuff that's beyond most people's comfort zones. And the outcome was that, yes, indeed, practice anything for long enough, and you too can be the next Gary Kasparov or Serena Williams or Lang Lang. Which means that the answer to that old question, and how do you get to Carnegie Hall, is... Practice, practice, practice. There's one word that puts a bomb under this whole thing, though. It's politically and socially very loaded. That word is genes. Is our creative ability not so much to do with 10,000 hours of practice, but much more to do with our DNA? Miriam Mosing is from the Department of Medical Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. It's a nice belief that we are responsible for where we are and that it's entirely explainable by a variable such as practice, which we feel that we can freely choose to engage in. And what we have found is that even how much someone practices is partly heritable. So there is a some sort of predisposition how much I, how willing I am to spend a specific amount of time on a specific task. So creativity and perhaps just as importantly the drive to be creative is inherited. That's right. So Through studying thousands of sets of genetically identical twins and almost as many sets of fraternal twins, Miriam and her team found that even with a substantial disparity in practice efforts, an incredible 20,228 hours in one case, each twin was found to have strikingly similar musical ability. 
And so that ability, in her view, has as much to do with who our parents are and the genetic makeup that's been bestowed on us as it does with practice. Well, it's that old phrase, isn't it? Creativity is a gift. You've either got it or you haven't, which runs a bit contrary to what we've been hearing up to now. So if Miriam is right and you're disappointed that your child isn't showing the early promise of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, don't be too hard on them. It's probably your fault or at least your DNA. I'm guessing that doesn't play well with the universal creative argument. Reactions were very mixed. So many really agreed to this finding and, and feel that it's intuitively correct that there are obviously huge differences between how much someone has to practice to reach a specific skill and that maybe some people may practice a lot and never reach a specific level. And then, of course, others have been not so happy with these findings. Feel that it, I feel it's a very nice belief to think that everyone can become anything as long as they practice enough hours. And how much of this is bound up with the prevailing unease with talking about genetics and heritable differences, whether in IQ or in other inherited talents? Has that affected what people are willing to research? And does it make us maybe more willing and more hopeful to believe that practice can can overcome any genetic inheritance? Yes, I, I believe so. I think in, in general, it's a general tendency of human personality that we like to say, I worked so hard, that's why I'm here. I'm in research because I've worked incredibly hard and not because I had the right background and maybe the right family upbringing and things like that. So people don't like that type of answer, I think. I think it's very important to keep in mind that we have genetics which play a role. And then to me, the most interesting part is how the genes and the environment act together to then create the behavior or the person. Maybe what is really important to know is that genetic research doesn't mean that it's inevitable or it's not changeable. It's just some sort of predisposition we have. So I, I don't think one should pre-select people and say other people are not allowed to try things. What I think is just that people should get all the opportunity they can get and then they're more likely to find something where they can succeed. People often have a very simplified view of genes and the gene for intelligence or the gene for sporting ability or the gene for musical ability and that we'll discover a single gene that gives you this ability. And once we do that, then we'll enter some kind of dystopian future where we spot the kids with the gene for music and we pick them up at age three and ship them off to a music academy. I don't think that would be any fun, but it sounds like from your work that doesn't seem likely either because the gene and phenotype interaction isn't nearly so simple. No, exactly. It's very complicated. And we also now know that although traits are very heritable, we have many underlying genetic variants which only explain little variants in the trait. So it will never be the case that we'll find one gene which singles out the successful musicians from the non-successful musicians. If Miriam Mosing is right, we'll never be able to isolate the musical gene. Help is on the way, though, from another rather unlikely source. I want to introduce you to the work of an extraordinary composer. OK, Lane, time to put your musical knowledge to the test. Who's the composer? Sounds a bit like Bach to me in a way. Nope. Uh, Beethoven? Please. OK. Um, Handel? No, and clearly you couldn't spot the feminine overtones in that piece because it's by the world-renowned composer Emily Howell. I do believe that machines can be creative, and that's uh, 
Very important. Okay, you got us. That's the voice of Emily Howell, or rather the voice of her creator, David Cope. You guessed it, Emily Howell is in fact a computer programme. David is both a composer and a scientist. He's been putting the rhythm in algorithm since the early 1980s. He's a former professor of music at the University of California in Santa Cruz. And Emily is his latest computerized amanuensis. She's actually an interactive interface that hears feedback from listeners and then builds musical compositions. By repeated exposure to the classics, David has effectively taught Emily to write music in a personal style. Her two albums have been big hits in the AI charts and in blind listening tests. Only half of the people who listen to her actually spotted that she is a computer composer. Quite who she's up against, though, I don't know. But at the moment, it's not about creating some AI musical genius. It's about giving a tool for existing composers to work with. I believe we'll have composers who are uh, eventually going to be able to experiment with all kinds of things they would never try because of the time involved, they'll be able to to judge that and go in a direction they never planned to go into because it worked and or didn't work. And so they didn't waste their time and their precious lives. Are you finding that's an open door, particularly with serious or established composers? Are they interested in this idea of weaving more sophisticated algorithms into into sort of music as it develops? Or is there still a suspicion or a sense that it's perhaps a little unholy? There are animosities between myself and uh, composers that I've never met. I mean, I've, I've heard their emails and I've heard their reviews of my work and and uh, I pretty much know what they think and they pretty much know what I think and we're just different. Do you think it's they don't like the music, which is kind of all right? I mean, it's, you know, we can all choose. Or do you think they don't like the idea? I think both. I think they don't like the music because they've decided before they even hear it, they don't like it because it can't be any good because they have a soul. They have creativity. They have many things that programs don't have. You know, the funny thing is a lot of these people will complain that I'm, you know, creating something that's going to be a a problem for humanity in the future, for composers and so forth. It's always seemed to me uh, when they say they're humanist and I'm an anti-humanist that I'm the humanist and they're the anti-humanist because it's it seems to me more powerful to be able to create a machine that can, in my case, create than it is to not be able to do that. Human beings are are special for a number of reasons. One, we can compose what some people think are great music or good music, as I do, and that's the end of it. And others, like me, think that you know music will continue to evolve, just like we are going to continue to evolve. And one of those evolutions is, in fact, a computer that can create music that can, if we're unbiased, create good music that we'll enjoy listening to and uh, continue to do so until it it actually produces music that is better than we can do. So this takes us into philosophically pretty deep waters. Heretofore, we've been worrying about the rise of AI and things like finance or transport, self-driving cars and things like that. But we've always comforted ourselves with the idea that surely things like musical creativity is safe from artificial intelligence. And 
can we ever call an algorithm creative? An algorithm, after all, is a little bit like a recipe. It's just a list of instructions, maybe a very sophisticated long list or maybe a very incredibly well-designed one, but it's automatic. It doesn't have any soul in there, any room to maneuver. I think that's exactly what I would have argued before we started on this journey. But I am beginning to see it a little bit differently. And I think this idea of a kind of magic and above and beyond the algorithm to creativity, I'm perhaps a little bit more suspicious of that than I was. It could be, of course, that our creative brains are more like a very sophisticated algorithm than we like to think. And that that is going to inform how we look at creativity as we look into the future. And we will leave you now with one of our favorite characters, playing the street piano at St. Pancras Station in London, the wonderful Dennis. My name is Dennis, 1M. Mummy and Daddy could only afford 1M. And I'm actually 89, 90 on the 2nd of September, if you can put that down, 2nd of September. Wherever I go, I can play the piano, if there's one there, Germany or Canada or... Anywhere, as long as there's a piano, I play. It's a joy to your brain, isn't it? It's using the brain and your memories, still going strong, fingers crossed. And it, it makes lots of friends, and it's a joy. One Saturday morning I played, and I played a hymn, and I get away with hymns up here. And the man came over to me, and he put his arms around me, and he said, thank you ever so much for playing that hymn. That's the hymn my wife and I had at our wedding. 50 years ago today. And just as they went past the piano, I happened to play that hymn. You've been listening to Creativity Explained, presented by Lane Green, that's me. And Anne McElvoy, that's me. Our producer is Craig Smith. It's a Whistledown production for Economist Radio, exec produced by David Prest. And as always, if you've any feedback for this series or for any of our shows, why not send them over in a creative manner? You can tweet us at Economist Radio or you could send us an email, radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating... Pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.